Thank you, Sam. So good morning. Never going to get bored of saying that. I'm never going to get it wrong either. So for those of you that don't know me, my name is Aaron. Uh, I'm part of the eldership team here at Grace Church. I'm really looking forward this morning to walking through uh, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. It's an incredible passage of scripture. So really excited to be opening that up with you all this morning. Now, Steve mentioned home groups a moment ago. And what we do in our home group every week as we uh, kind of open up for the evening, and, and this will be maybe the same for, for people who are members of other home groups here, but what we do is we start the evening by sharing all the different ways that God is blessing us. So we're sharing the things that we're rejoicing in God for. And we get many, many different answers each week. So maybe today you're celebrating the fact that school is over, and you're traveling back to your home country to see loved ones. Or maybe this week you took an opportunity to share the gospel with a friend or a family member. Or possibly you've recently received a promotion at work. There are many, many reasons that each of us will have to praise God. Because as Steve has spoken about this last couple of weeks, all good things that we receive are grace gifts bought by Jesus' blood. And this is what the author Paul turns our attention to this morning. So the first four chapters of Romans, we see very clearly that by our own actions, in our own power, we are not able to come to God and be justified. Because the justification that we need, being made right with God, can only come through faith in Jesus, the one who justifies. And the focus up until now has very much been magnifying our sin, which enables us to grasp this fact that actually, in our own power, we are powerless to receive anything from God that we have actually earned. And we've seen very clearly that the, the, the Jesus-given justification that can only come by faith what that does is that saves us from our sin. And that is a salvation that we desperately, desperately need. But what we see now in chapter 5 that Sam has just read for us, we see Paul describe what else it is that we have gained in being justified by faith. Because it is true and it is important, and Paul has focused very clearly on the fact that we have escaped the wrath of God. But being righteous before God brings many, many, many more benefits than not being punished for our sin. And what Paul does in these opening, chapter, uh, opening verses of Romans 5 is he lists three reasons that we have to rejoice in God. Now, the first of these reasons is that being justified by faith means that we now have peace with God. And I'm pretty sure that everybody in this room can get on board with this. This sounds good, doesn't it? We've got peace with God. And then the second reason that Paul gives is because we have the hope of the glory of God. Now, this sounds like we might need to do some thinking to understand exactly what that means. But again, it sounds something that we would definitely be interested in receiving. And then Paul gives the third reason that we should rejoice. And what does he say? He says, we should rejoice in our sufferings. 
That sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? That's not really what you're expecting to hear. Rejoice in our sufferings. It almost sounds like an oxymoron because you've got kind of rejoicing over here on this end of the spectrum and you've got suffering over here on this end. How can it be possible that we rejoice in our sufferings? Well, I don't want to jump ahead, but we're going to come to that in a moment. But first, we're going to take a look back at verse 1 and examine all that Paul says in detail. So let's turn to verse 1 if you have your Bible. If not, it will be on the screen behind me. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, as I've said, I'm pretty sure we all agree that this is certainly something that we can rejoice in. What Paul is saying here is that if you have put your trust in Christ for salvation, as described in the chapters that we've been reading up until now, then you have been justified and if you have been justified, then you have peace with God. And the thing that I love most about what Paul is saying here in these things, in, 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 in justification and in peace with God, is that he says that they have been accomplished. He's not saying that you are being justified. He's not saying that you will have peace. He's saying that these things have already been achieved. These things are already so. Which means that if you are a follower of Jesus, your status before God is not in doubt, nor will it ever be. Because Paul is not describing a process. Paul is not describing a future event. Our eternal salvation is accomplished once and for all when we come to faith in Christ, because our salvation is based entirely on the completed work of Christ at the cross. Meaning we have an eternal and we have a permanent peace with God. And I'm sure we'll all agree that there are times when maybe our feelings tell us something quite different, because the sin within us seeks to divert our attention away from this glorious truth. As it tells us, we cannot survive without this possession. We can't keep going without that person. Or it questions whether God can truly be trusted or whether he even loves us. Or even, is God really in control? But in moments of anxiety or in moments of fear, this truth that we have been justified by faith and that we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, is one that we can cling to and one that we can meditate on until we experience that very peace that is already ours in him. So firstly, we should join with Paul in rejoicing that we have peace with God achieved by Jesus. And we should also rejoice in verse 2. Let's read that. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Okay, so not only do we have peace in God, but here we also read that we have received the most precious thing 
that we could possibly imagine. And that is access to God's grace or his undeserved favor, his undeserved um, love towards us by our faith in Christ. And of course, our response to this incredible grace, again, should be that we should rejoice. But more than this, Paul also says that our rejoicing should be in hope of the glory of God. So what does Paul mean when he says this? Well, I think only a few verses earlier in Romans 3.23, we see a clue as to what Paul is saying here. Because what Paul says is all have fallen short, all have sinned and have fallen short of this very same glory of God. Meaning that we've all fallen short of God's perfect standard. So God's glory, in this sense, is simply a description of himself and all that he is. Everything about God is glorious, and all glory belongs to him. He is effectively the definition or the standard of glory. So piecing it together with our previous verses, now that we've been justified, our sins have been forgiven, we have peace with God, and by that peace, we, sorry, by his grace, we will also experience his glory. That is, we will receive everything that he is for all eternity, forevermore, in its fullness. Now, we can't even comprehend with our minds the scale of how huge this is. God's glory, his eternal glory, in its fullness, our minds cannot even begin to conceive. But we can look forward to this, and we can know for sure that this is absolutely a reason for us to rejoice. However, some of you might be thinking, well, that sounds great, but is this guaranteed? Because when I read this passage, what it says is that we're rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. What I want to read is we're rejoicing in the certainty of the glory of God. And you might be thinking, how can we rejoice in something that is not certain if it's just a hope? So, and I apologize for any non-football or soccer fans, but I'm going to use a soccer or football, depending where you're from, analogy. So for anyone who follows the English Premier League, they would have saw recently Arsenal fans were rejoicing back in March because they thought that they were going to win the title. They had hope. They were top of the table. Things looked good, but it wasn't certain. They were rejoicing in the hope of something that they thought was going to come. But this hope, these Arsenal fans, they were proved foolish when Abu Dhabi's own Manchester City roared back to win the title. So like those soccer fans, surely rejoicing in something that is a hope is foolish, isn't it? Well, fortunately, our hope as Christian believers is very different to the hope of a football fan. The similarity is it's an expectation based on something that we're anticipating that will happen, a future event. But the difference is in whom the hope is placed. We're not placing our hope in a football team who have limited control of the outcome. Rather, we're placing our hope in Jesus. And the outcome of this hope is determined by his perfect, his complete act of sacrifice at the cross. 
Meaning that it's when we say we have a hope in Jesus, it's not a kind of wishful thinking kind of hope. It is a sure, it is a certain hope that we can claim now with confident expectation. So that is the first two things that we're rejoicing in. And hopefully everybody in this room up until now is completely in agreement. These are good reasons to rejoice. Because one, we have peace with God. And two, because we have a sure and certain hope that we will experience the goodness, the eternal glory of God in its fullness. Which then brings us to the part I think maybe we're waiting for, the third reason that Paul gives us. Maybe an unusual reason for celebration. This being, we should be rejoicing in God because of our suffering. Let's read Romans 5, chapter uh, verses 3 to 5, to see if we can kind of get to the bottom of what Paul's saying. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, each and every one of us would have suffered in different ways. And the truth is, each and every one of us has got suffering at some point down the road. And understandably, when we go through a period of suffering and it's over, we feel relief, don't we? And I'm sure there's nobody in the room right now who is relishing the next time that they're going to know suffering. Because suffering is hard. Suffering is unpleasant. Suffering is certainly not enjoyable. The first word that comes to mind when you think of suffering often is not celebration. And I think there's going to be people in this room right now who feel that the idea that we rejoice in our sufferings, just, it just doesn't make sense. Because maybe you have believed or maybe you've been taught that as Christians, actually we shouldn't even know suffering. That if you experience suffering, it means that your faith isn't quite right. Somehow you need to believe harder. You need to believe more or better. Now let me be clear. This way of thinking could not be more dangerous. Because if this is what you believe, then when suffering comes and it inevitably will do, it will shake your whole foundation. Because what it means is that your foundation is in the strength of your faith. And that is wrong. Our faith must be in Jesus and his faithfulness, which Paul is teaching here is clearly not in question, even during times of suffering. Because he is saying that suffering for Christians, is not just something that is to be expected. He is saying that suffering is something that should be rejoiced in. For others, hearing these words from Paul, it might even be causing you to bristle right now with anger because nobody knows the extent of what you are dealing with this morning. When somebody says to you, you just need to rejoice in your suffering, it sounds trite, it sounds unrealistic, and it sounds uncaring. You want to scream, walk a mile in my shoes. 
and then tell me to rejoice in my suffering. So before we look at the reasons that Paul gives for rejoicing in our suffering, we must first look to Jesus and be reminded that whilst nobody in this room will know or fully experience the exact suffering that you have known, nobody can fully empathize with your personal pain and your hardship, Jesus absolutely has, and Jesus absolutely can. In going to the cross, Jesus experienced suffering greater than any of us could possibly imagine. Jesus was perfectly sinless. Yet at the cross, he paid the price for the sins of the world. As horrific as the physical pain that Jesus went through at the cross, it would have been nothing. It would have been nothing compared to the spiritual pain that Jesus knew being separated from the Father. This would be a torture unlike any we could know. Excuse me. This is something that we cannot even begin to imagine or to understand. So we know that no matter our suffering, well, that was a funny noise, no matter our sufferings, Jesus can fully and Jesus can truly empathize with us. More than this, when we become believers, God gives us his Holy Spirit to dwell within us. Jesus said this, in John 14, verses 16 to 17. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now the word helper used here to describe the Holy Spirit could also be translated as advocate or counselor. No matter what you're going through today, Jesus is not able to fully empathize with you. Not only is he able to do that, but also by the Holy Spirit, he's with you. He can comfort you. He will give you everything you need if you turn to him. As we've read, he is with us forever. So we know that we are never going through trials or suffering alone. So if you are suffering right now, if you are struggling to even comprehend what Paul is saying about how we should rejoice in these sufferings, then this is our start point, Jesus. Jesus knows what you're going through. He can fully empathize with you. And indeed, he is with you every step of the way by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what we're going to read here in these verses in Romans mirrors exactly what we see from Jesus. The suffering that Jesus went through was the greatest suffering possible. But the outcome of it produced a gift far greater than we could ever hope for because it brought about the eternal restoration of our broken relationship with the Father. Jesus' suffering was not in vain. It brought about something of immeasurable value, which is what we see Paul talking about for us here in the book of Romans, about our own suffering, and why we should embrace, and why we should even rejoice in it. And the first link of the chain 
is that suffering produces endurance. Let's look again at verse 3 where we see this. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And I think we know this instinctively, don't we? If you go to the gym, you go there to be fitter and stronger and faster. I mean, obviously, someone like me, I just go to maintain. But, but for, for others, you want to get fitter and stronger and faster. If you play tennis, you spend hours in hard practice to hit the ball faster and harder, with more spin, with more accuracy. Or for many of our young people here now, you would have known the suffering of study to enable you to endure through the, the many exams that you'd have gone through over these last couple of months. But what we do is we see that suffering produces an outcome. And we know this. If you're trusting Jesus in your suffering, then it is never in vain. It is never wasted. God will always use our suffering to bring about far greater good than the difficulties that it causes. And that is sometimes difficult to imagine how. But we read this in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And to be clear, when Paul says this, he's not playing down our suffering in calling it light and momentary, because that's how we can read it. It's like, well, our, well, our suffering isn't important then. But that's not what he is doing. Paul himself experienced great difficulties. He prayed earnestly to have the thorn in his side removed on multiple occasions. He was beaten. He was thrown in prison. He suffered more for the sake of Christ than I would guess that anybody in this room has. But when compared to the eternal weight of glory that is found in Christ, when compared to that, our suffering today, no matter how horrific, can only be described as light and momentary. Paul's intention here is to take our eyes off of ourself, take our eyes off of our own suffering, and turn them towards Jesus and begin to see just how glorious he is. And when you think about it, it's just amazing. Think of all the suffering in the whole world that's going on right now, just today. We can't even go there, can we? Our, our minds can't even fathom the depths of what that must even look like. Yet, in comparison to God's glory, it is considered light and momentary. I think this helps us to understand better what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9, where he says this, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. God's glory is astounding. Our suffering will be worth it. So when we come face to face with hardships, rather than succumb to bitterness, rather than get sucked into the temptation to moan and complain, instead what we can do by God's grace is turn to Jesus and trust him that his word 
that he is sufficient for every need. And what will happen, what we see here, is that when we do this, our faith will grow. So just as a muscle gains strength through resistance training, your faith becomes stronger when tested by suffering. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 to 7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The, 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 the trials that we face now act as refining flames, purifying and strengthening our faith. So when the Apostle Paul says that suffering produces endurance, he is revealing that God in his divine wisdom, is using the very difficulties that we face in order to forge within us an unbreakable faith. This is a beautiful truth. Throughout the ups and downs in life, of life, throughout our trials, throughout our tribulations, our faith becomes steady and it becomes unwavering. This is designed so that our faith becomes an anchor that holds us firm when the storms of life come. And by his grace, it transforms us into joyful individuals who not only endure suffering, but also find cause for rejoicing in them. And this is my own personal experience. So over the course of 18 years of marriage, now Natasha's experienced much suffering, sadly having to be married to me, just my jokes I think are, are probably enough, but some of the greatest challenges that we face together have been during when Tasha's had struggles with mental health. And as anyone who's experienced this, or indeed anyone who is experiencing this now, you will know that these times are bleak. Because when a mental health challenge, like other forms of suffering, when it comes, it comes out of nowhere, and you're not expecting it. And you don't know, because of that, how long it will go on for, and when it will go. You feel like this is, this is, this is not going to end, there's no light at the end of this tunnel. But what we've seen, as we've gone through these times, and we've thrown ourselves on God's mercy, we have seen such a close fellowship, both with each other within, within our marriage, but perhaps even more importantly, as we've prayed, as we've sought after God, we've known greater fellowship with him. And we would both say, as strange as it sounds, that we have felt closer to God during those times than any others. It's been when we've been in this place, again, this sounds even stranger, that we find more joy in him. With the result being, it's been at this times where we've grown most in our faith, where we've learned more about him and where we've learned to endure. So suffering produces endurance. That's the first thing. But this isn't all. We read in the first half of verse 4 that this endurance then goes on to produce character. So I guess the first question here is, what's Paul mean when he says character. Well, the original Greek word that was used is a word that is dokime, and is also translated as proven worth. Now, given that Jesus is the only one that is worthy of our praise, I think a good way to think of character is Christ-likeness. So good character is Christ-likeness. 
So I think in using this word, dokime, proven worth, Paul is saying two things. Firstly, he's saying the act of enduring suffering makes us more Christ-like. So the process of suffering, it refines us, it should breed within us humility, and in the suffering, as we turn our eyes, as we turn our hope onto Jesus, it makes us more like him. So that's one element of what I think Paul is saying, but also there's that proven element, it's proven worth. And I think what Paul is saying is that suffering tests us as to whether our faith is truly in Jesus. So it tests whether our faith is genuine. Is it authentic? So to pick up again on the analogy that Peter used, when you put metal into the fire and it's tested, its genuineness is shown by whether it endures. So when we go through difficulties, when our faith is tested and it perseveres, then we've been trusting in him. And what that gives us is a personal sense of authenticity. In this, we know that our faith is real. Your faith has stood the test with perseverance. It's proven. So this is another of the reasons that Paul gives us that we should rejoice in our suffering because it makes us more like Jesus and it proves our faith in him. But there's more. So let's read verse 4 again. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. This is kind of getting better, isn't it? It's like a, a virtuous circle. So our growing Christ-likeness, our proven faith in him, then gives us hope. So how does this work? Well, firstly, this character comes from spending time with Jesus through our trials, relying entirely on him, spending time in his word, spending time praying, being sanctified, by him. As we do these things, ultimately, we come to know Jesus even more. And the more we do this, the more clearly we see, the more clearly we understand who he really is. The more we taste his glory, and the greater our trust in him grows. So our hope, our confidence in his many promises grows to be more sure and more certain, as time and again, we know his faithfulness through our trials. And hand in hand with this, with each trial, as our faith is proven, we see that we ourselves are indeed trusting in Jesus. Because it's easy, isn't it, to say, yes, I'm trusting Jesus when times are good, when there's no problems to face. Because by nature, maybe it's just me, but I think we're all so good at self-deception. We can convince ourselves that our faith is strong and genuine when actually maybe our hope is in our health or our wealth or people around us. But as we go through trials, as we encounter God's goodness in them, as we prove our faith to be real, we grow in hope. As we see and we experience that our faith is authentic and that God indeed gets us through these trials. And then Paul expands on this in verse 5 as to why this is another reason to rejoice in our suffering. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is incredible. As we've already seen, as we come to know Jesus more, our hope grows, and then this should cause us 
to rejoice. And as we see our faith proven, we grow in confidence that our, our faith is authentic. And again, this breeds even greater hope. And again, we rejoice. But if this wasn't enough, God here is giving us more. And maybe some of us who are more anxious or who kind of more fearful will be thinking today, seeing God's faithfulness through trials is great. And knowing that our own faith in God is really good. But what if the object of our faith is not real? What if we're just kind of trusting in a hero in a book and what that's done has been great because it's made us feel braver and we've kind of got through the trials, so therefore everything's okay. But what if he's not real? What if indeed he doesn't love us? What if he doesn't even exist? Can we have this assurance? And the answer we see here in verse 5 is gloriously yes. We can know that our hope is not in vain, not just because we've got through all our trials thus far, and not just because as we've done so, we've been holding on to Jesus. And this is very, very, very helpful. But more than this, we can know because of the witness of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And as it tells us here, he pours God's love into our hearts. He doesn't kind of drip it in one drop at a time. It tells us here, he pours it in, in abundance, because God's love is abundant. He wants us to know. He wants us to be assured of this. And the way we can have assurance is by experiencing this love. And this is a promise. He doesn't say he might pour his love into our hearts. It tells us that he already has. But what if you're not experiencing this? What if you've never experienced that feeling of God's love? Well, if you are trusting Jesus as your Lord, as your Savior, if you're battling sin, if you're seeking after him, then you have been given the Holy Spirit. Because it says that very clearly at the end of verse 5. And this is a once and for all thing. When you become a believer and the Holy Spirit dwells within you, you are saved. And for this to happen, we see here that the Holy Spirit is pouring the love of God into our hearts. Now for some of us, maybe we experienced this very strongly when we became believers. That was, by God's grace, very much my experience. And I remember the, the joy of coming to know the Lord. But maybe for some of us, we didn't experience it in this way. But if you are trusting Jesus, you can know that he has poured God's love into your heart. And this is crucial, though. It was only by his love coming into, this, into your heart that you could come to know him. So if you know Jesus, then he has done this. So his love has been poured into our hearts. And this is written in the perfect tense, meaning that this has been completed, but the effects of it are ongoing. So we can still experience Jesus' love here and now. And this is open to all who are trusting Jesus. So if you're not feeling God's love, 
here and now, it doesn't mean that God's love isn't with you. We can experience this again, maybe in more powerful ways than we ever have done before. So the question really is, how? Well, Paul says this in 2 Thessalonians. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. In this passage, Paul is praying for God to direct the hearts of the Thessalonian believers. So these are believers. They have had the love of God poured into their hearts by the Holy Spirit. And using this phrase, direct their hearts, Paul is expressing his desire for God to guide their affections, their desires, their priorities, and he wants them to be inclined towards God's love, which has already, as I've said, been poured into their hearts. And he wants them to find it more satisfying than the lesser loves that maybe their hearts will pull towards. And in doing this, Paul is recognizing quite clearly that our hearts are prone to wander. I think we all know this, don't we? Our hearts are prone to wander away from the greatest love than we can have. So he's praying that God would intervene and align their hearts with the love of God. And the fact that Paul is praying this shows us that aligning our heart to God's love is not a one-time event. It's an ongoing experience that we should be seeking, and it's one that will naturally fluctuate in intensity. So if we're not feeling assured in our faith, if we're not currently experiencing the love of God, then firstly, we need to focus again on Jesus. Where we've been distracted by other priorities, we need to repent. And as we see Paul do here, the most important thing is we need to ask. Because it is clear that it is by God's grace and only by God's grace that we can experience the love of God. We can't kind of work this up ourselves. But we also know that God always gives good gifts at the right time, which is why we ask. And as we've seen throughout the chapter, the passage that we've been reading this morning, this may not come easily as we seek after God for an experience of his love. This in itself might be frustrating as you're not experiencing what you want to experience. And do you know what that's called? That is called suffering. In his wisdom and his kindness, God may be calling us like Jacob to wrestle with him, to experience his love again. And this will not be in vain. God will use this to grow our endurance and in turn our character, and in turn he will use this to grow our hope, which will surely not be put to shame. So if you're not feeling, if you're not experiencing the love of Christ in your heart right now, repent of any distractions that have taken his rightful place and keep asking, knowing that you will experience this love by the power of the Holy Spirit in his perfect timing. And whilst you seek him, you will be blessed beyond measure. So I guess all that's left to ask ourselves is how am I doing at suffering? And as I was preparing this message, the answer for me was not very well. <laughs> but that's what we should ask. Am I suffering well? More than this, am I able to rejoice in my suffering? Or conversely, am I becoming bitter? Wondering why always me, feeling sorry 
for myself, turning away from God because I don't trust that he's actually for me. Which is a very, very dangerous place to be because what this means is two things. Firstly, if we're not turning to God during our times of trial, then our suffering is in vain. And this is tragic because if we don't draw near to Jesus at these times, then we're unable to experience this grace that we've seen this morning through them. They're not producing the endurance, the character, the hope that they were designed to do. But not only this, if our response is to turn away from God at times of trial, then we need to see that actually this isn't just foolish, but this is actually sin. Because if we don't draw near to Jesus in these times, then actually that sin will lead us away from God, which could not have more grave consequences. Because if we're not turning to Jesus in our suffering, then we can have no assurance of our salvation. But I have very good news. Jesus' grace is sufficient for you in your suffering, even if you're not experiencing it right now. And this is open to everybody, whether you know Jesus yet or not. He is inviting us to put our faith fully and firmly in him, to trust him as Lord over our lives, to trust him as our saviour, the one who rescues us from sin and from death, and as our greatest treasure, the one who eclipses all other things that seek after our hearts. So if this is the place you're in this morning, then I would urge you to place your hope in Jesus. And as you do, he will show you that this hope will not be put to shame. Let's pray. Yeah, Lord Jesus, I lift anybody here this morning to you, Lord, that is going through a time of trial, tribulation, suffering, Lord, that is struggling to experience you and your love right now, Lord. I pray, Father, that you would capture them by your incredible glory, Lord. I pray, Father, that they would learn to come from the Holy Spirit.